you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 17. Chapter 17. Guys in the back, I had the wrong note at the top of my sermon notes, and I just remembered that I didn't tell you that. Jeremiah chapter 17, we're going to read verses 1 through 14 together. And I think we're really going to see the heart of Jeremiah's prophecy, uh, emphasis on heart today. Jeremiah chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. These are the words of Jeremiah. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altar. While their children remember the altars and their asherim beside every green tree and on every high hill, on the mountains in the open country. Your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you. And I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Thus says the Lord. Cursed is the man who trusts in man. And makes flesh his strength. Whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. Shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man whose trust is in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and it is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Like the partridge that gathers a brood that she did not hatch, so is he who gets riches, but not by justice. In the midst of his days they will leave him, and at his end he will be a fool. A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake You shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, how beautiful it is To hear the singing of your people gathered together. What an encouragement it is in the midst of hard days, in the midst of this desert that we live in, to come in and with all of the congregation attached by the root to living water, being able in the midst of suffering, in the midst of sickness, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of difficulty, being able to lift up our voices because of our root connected to the fountain together. Lord, our community has experienced a loss this week, a loss that's affected many in our congregation. I pray for Seth's family, that Lord, you would draw near to them with your comforter. I pray that the words of scripture would be a refuge for them. I pray for Shelby and for Hayden especially. I pray for Dennis and Kelly. I pray for Michael and Tiffany. Lord, I pray for this family that you would draw near and that, Lord, you would use the good news of the gospel as a, as a bomb on their broken hearts. 
Lord, let us as a church family rally around those who are suffering. And Lord, I know that there are many others here facing various maladies and difficulties and hardships. And Lord, I pray that that same gospel bomb would be good news to them this morning. And that, Lord, you would be the restorer of their hearts and the lifter of their heads and the renewer of their spirits. Lord, we are thankful that we have apparently no place to turn. We always have a place to turn to you. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Seven years ago, I decided I was going to get in the best shape of my life. And so Andrew, Alan, and I decided that we were going to train for a marathon. And if you ever trained for a marathon, I know some of you have, it literally feels like all you do is run all the time. You wake up and you run, you come home and you run, you, on the weekends you run, like it's just what you do, right? And so we had this Saturday, and we had done a seven-mile training run, and it had went really well. Like, I left encouraged because I thought I could have kept going. And so I really felt like, you know, that moment you're, you feel like you've hit a breakthrough, your training is on target. And so on Monday, I went to do a three-mile training run, but my stomach started hurting so bad that I couldn't, I couldn't make it past a mile, mile and a half. Tuesday, I tried to do the same thing, a short run compared to what I had just ran on Saturday, and same thing happened, a mile, mile and a half in, my stomach was hurting so badly that I, that I had to stop it. My stomach started hurting me throughout the day. So I, I went to a doctor, he thought maybe it was acid, I took the medicine they gave me, it didn't feel better. I went to another doctor, he thought it was an antibiotic that I was taking, so I stopped taking that and it seemed to resolve. Well, I felt like things were improving, so I went on to Africa. And five days into my trip at Afri- in Africa, I wasn't able to eat. And then my fever shot up to 105. And then it felt like I was shot in the stomach with a rifle. And I knew the situation was grave. I knew that it was dangerous. The Lord was kind and I was able to come home. And I, Megan immediately had me go to the doctor and go to the emergency room. So I go to the emergency room. And I'm coughing profusely and having all the, and so they looked at me and they could not find anything wrong. And so on my official discharge papers from the ER, it says cough, cough. That night was one of the most excruciating nights of my life. And I didn't sleep hardly at all. And five o'clock in the morning, I was up and I was vomiting. It was not a good situation. So we decided to go to a different ER I go to a different ER, and what they discover is that I have 18 inches of perforations along my small intestines, and my intestines have ruptured, and I have a condition called peritonitis, and they inform Megan and I that I am within 24 hours of passing away. Emergency surgery is required. But what the doctor said to me, he says, Mr. Hell, the reason that you have been misdiagnosed so many times is that your symptoms don't seem nearly as bad as the situation is. That when I look at you from the outside, you have the appearance of health, you have the appearance of of being well, you have the appearance of having everything that you need, and when I look at you from the outside, you look like any young man that might come in here should look. But what we've been able to tell is that you're dying. You know, it's interesting. Symptoms bother us, but disease kills us. And that's a pretty good summary of the prophecy of Jeremiah. 
that Judah has lots of symptoms. They have lots of things that are going on and lots of issues that are at hand. Lots of symptoms that are evident and presenting to the eye. But what they don't recognize is how grave their situation is. And so Jeremiah's prophecy is for the intention of letting them know, yes, yes, the symptoms are bothersome, but the disease, the disease that is at hand is going to bring you to death. And so he gives us this prophecy for the purpose of getting to the heart of the issue that's in Judah, the heart of the issue that's in the Old Covenant, and the heart of the issue for you and I. I think Jeremiah 17 is an especially helpful and easy passage from the book of Jeremiah to be able to apply to my life and to yours because it is less prophetic and more proverbial. He is, even you can hear Psalm 1 in the background of what he's saying as he talks about being planted by streams of water. It is something that would have applied to Judah all the way back, na- back then and it is something that certainly speaks directly to you and I today. And I think what Jeremiah 17 helps us to do is to move through the symptoms to the root cause to get a good diagnosis of who we may be and what we may be that we might find a remedy. So I want us to ask a series of diagnostic questions today. Questions that can help us get closer and closer to the diagnosis of our lives that we might be able to enjoy the fullness of what God has for us. The first question that I want us to see is, I want us to ask is, what is your life producing what is your life producing symptoms are not the main problem but the the symptoms are significant that every good diagnosis begins with the symptoms they are the god-ordained means to alert us in our lives that everything is not as it ought to be we have symptoms health-wise that bother us so that we can know that beneath the surface there's something going on that's unhealthy and the same is true for us spiritually I read from Matthew chapter 7, something I'm going to speak to even later on in the sermon today. And, and in there, Jesus is talking about fruit. And that's at the center of what Jeremiah is talking about here in Jeremiah chapter 17. And so what we can see is that throughout the Bible, fruit is synonymous with our understanding of symptoms. That the way the Bible understands fruit is it understands fruit as being the outside, the external manifestation, the external Uh, the external picture of what is taking place internally. That if there is disease and there is unhealth internally, there is going to be disease and unhealth in the fruit. And if there is flourishing and thriving internally, there is going to be uh, thriving and healthy fruit that is nurturing and filled with nourishment. And so Jeremiah compares Judah and he says, look and contrast two different types of trees. Two different types of trees that are producing two different types of fruit. Now, the first tree is an unhealthy one, and the second tree is a healthy one. And what he's wanting them to see is the difference between who they are and who God intends for them to be. Where they are and where God intends for them to go. That currently they're withering, but God intends for them to be flourishing. And that's the question, isn't it? Are you withering? Are you withering? The first tree that Jeremiah describes in verse 6 is really less of a tree and more of a shrub. He says he is like a shrub in the desert. in, In his mind is this parched, dried out bush in the middle of a desolate, arid land that is covered in thorns. 
He says when you look for the fruit of the shrub in the midst of the desert, what you're going to find is that no good comes from him. There is no beautiful, delightful, enjoyable, nourishing fruit that's coming from this shrub in the middle of the desert. It just sits there and collects the dust. In fact, the way that he describes this shrub is interesting and pointed. He says, he shall dwell in parched places in the wilderness, in uninhabited salt land. That is, if you were to go and you were to talk to this bush, and this bush could talk to you, here's what it would say. I'm parched. I never have enough. I live in an uninhabited land. I'm always alone. I am, my roots are sunk deep into poisoned, salty soil. I can do no good. I can make no changes. I am what I am. It is what it is, and it can be no other. Now, I want you to think about the fruit of your life. Does that sound indicative of yours? Is that how you would say and what you would speak if the song of your heart could could get out of your lips and you could express it to another person? Is that the same things that you might say? Do you feel like you never have enough? Do you feel like you never have enough? Is that why you're always applying for a new job? Is that why you feel like you need to go and get another degree? Is that why you keep swiping your credit card? Because you feel like something inside of you is insatiable, like you are parched and thirsty and cannot be satisfied. Do you always feel alone? In a crowded room just like this one where everyone is singing out, do do the songs fall on deaf ears with you and you always still feel lonely and dismayed? Is that why you retreat to a virtual world? Is that why you continue to return to the glow of pornography on your screen? Is that why you have the secret relationship that nobody else knows about because you feel completely alone no matter where you are and you just want some connection? Does it feel like your life has no impact at all? Do you feel sterile and impotent? Unable to make changes, unable to do anything different, as though every, all of the ground around your life is filled with salt so that none of your efforts matter and all of it feels like vanity. Is that why you keep turning to alcohol? Is that why you keep turning to the drugs? Is that why you wonder sometimes if life is worth living at all? See, what Jeremiah is writing to Judah is the same thing that I want to say to you. Judah is in a time of relative peace. Assyria is on the descent. Prosperity is on the rise. Life seems fine. But Jeremiah wants us to recognize that your bank account may have plenty of money in it. And your house may be a nice roof over your head. And you may have ridden here in a nice car this morning. But that doesn't mean that you're not withering at the root and withering unto death. What is the fruit of your life saying? Are you withering? Are you withering? Are you parched? Well, there's a second tree, a contrasting tree, a healthy tree that asks a second question. Not are you withering, but are you flourishing? Are you flourishing? He describes a a second tree and he says that this tree is planted by water. It sends out its roof by the stream. Now what's interesting is that the first tree is called cursed. The first tree is called cursed. It said that this tree is cursed when you look at what's going on. And this tree, because of where its confidence is, is is cursed as a result. And that's why it's in the salted ground. And that's why it's lonely. And that's why it's parched. But this second tree, the second tree is a blessed tree. 
The second tree is planted by streams of water and where the other one seems to never have enough. This one always has what, it's need, what it needs. And what Jeremiah is doing is he is turning Judah's definition of what it means to be blessed on its head. And I think if we would be honest, Judah's definition of what it means to be blessed is very similar to the definition of our culture of what it means to be blessed. See, Judah had come to believe that if I have enough money... If I have all the things that I want that make me happy, if I can do all the things that I enjoy, then I must be blessed. But Jeremiah comes to them and he says, no, 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 that's not what it means to be blessed at all. This is at the center of Jeremiah's prophecy. I put Jeremiah chapter 9 there at the bottom and listen to what Jeremiah says. He says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man, sorry about that, let not the mighty man, whoa, boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows and understands me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and unrighteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. That is, to be blessed doesn't mean to have everything that you want in order to be happy. He says, if you're wealthy... Don't boast in your wealth. If you're strong, don't boast in your strength. If you're wise, don't boast in your wisdom. All of those things are fleeting. All of those things are temporary. All of those things can be gone from you in a second. He says, no, no, no. To be blessed, to be actually blessed, to, to, and, and this is covenant language. To be cursed is to be outside of relationship with God. To be severed from God like a, like a branch, severed from the vine, John 15 would tell us. And to be blessed is to be connected to the vine, to be inside of the covenant, to have an abiding relationship with God. He says, no, to be blessed is to need only God in order to be happy and to be certain that you're always going to have him. That if all you need to be happy and all you need to be satisfied and all you need to be, uh, to be fulfilled in your life is the knowledge of God and a relationship with God and the enjoyment of God, then you can be certain, blessed person, that you will always have exactly the one that you need to be happy, blessed, and satisfied. It's a contrasting picture that he paints, isn't it? The... The first tree is parched. The first tree is lonely. The first tree is sterile. But listen to how it describes the second tree. He is a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. He does what in the world, y'all? This thing is going crazy on me. He is, he does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green. And is not anxious in the year of drought. For it does not cease to bear fruit. Do you see the difference? What does it mean to be blessed? What it means to be blessed is to have a sense of security in your soul that you will always have what you need. To have a sense of security in your soul that you are right with God and that God will take care of you and that God will be near to you. Not anxious in the year of drought. To be blessed means to have peace in your soul, that God will always provide for you, and that God will always protect you. Isn't that what you're looking for? Security and peace? Isn't that what you want more than anything? Security and peace? The blessed person says, what I need is I need to know God. And if I know God, I will know peace. And if I know God, I will know encouragement. If I know God, I will know that I always have everything that I need, always when I need it, as I need it. It's the inverse of what has already been said. 
that I will know that I will always be satisfied because my chief ambition is to bring glory to God. So if I have cancer, he will give me the resources to bring him glory with my cancer. If I experience loss, he will give me the resources to bring him glory with my loss. If I experience hardship, he will give me the resources in my hardship to bring him glory in my hardship. If it is in success and if it is in ease of living, if it is with great wealth, God will always give me what I need to fulfill my chief ambition in life which is to bring him glory and honor with my life. I can be satisfied with no matter how much or no matter how little I have, I can be satisfied because I have the Lord and the Lord is all I have. Are you alone? No, I'm not alone. It means I will never be alone because he is one who sits closer than a brother. It is the promise of Jesus. I will be with you always to the end of the age. And I believe him. I know him. And because I believe him and I know him, my heart is encouraged. My heart is filled with peace. I find security and peace in my soul. I know I am never alone. Does your life matter? My life matters, but I don't have to be the savior of the world. I don't have to bear the weight of my family. I don't have to bear the weight of my sins. I don't have to bear the weight of my community. There is a God whom I know, and he bears the weight. And he will use my little old life any way he chooses. And he has said that he is saving this world. And he has said that he is bringing all things together for his glory. And I can be certain that he will do it even through me. See, that's what it means to be blessed, brothers and sisters. What does the fruit of your life say? What does the fruit of your life say? Are you withering or are you flourishing? Do you feel more like the parched bush in the middle of the desert covered in thorns? Or are you the tree planted by streams of water where you are bearing fruit and your leaves are green and you are filled with health and joy in the Lord? Well, that brings us to our second question. Not just what is your life producing, but what are your circumstances revealing? What are your circumstances revealing? So we need the symptoms. We need to know what's going on. We need to be able to see the fruit and see what's happening in our lives to be able to get a good diagnosis. But brothers and sisters, we cannot stay there. And too often in the church, we want to stay with the presenting issue. We want to just look at the fruit, look at the symptoms, and try to get somebody to glue apples on a thorn bush. Well, that doesn't work, right? You have someone that comes and they struggle with pornography. We just want to say, stop it. Don't do that anymore. Repent and turn away. You have somebody that struggles with outbursts of anger. We want to just look at them and say, stop it. Don't do that anymore. Turn away. Someone who struggles with worry and anxiety. Someone who, who struggles with addiction. And we just want to be able to look at them and say, just don't do it. It's killing you. No, brothers and sisters, we ought to tell people to repent of their sins. We ought to tell them that their sins are sins against the Lord. And we ought to tell them to stop. But if we want them to be able to overcome it for good, we have to get past the symptom. Past the presenting issue to get to the heart of the issue. To the root cause. Let me give you an example. To be a workaholic is to live in sin. It is. It's a disordered life. God has given us work and work is right and work is beautiful. But when you work to the point of neglecting your family, work to the point of neglecting your relationship with the Lord, work to the point of neglecting your relationship with his church, you are overworking. And at that point, a good desire has become a disordered desire. And what God intended to bring good and benefit into your life and satisfaction in your life has now brought corruption in your life. And that's how all sin works, right? God, we take the good things that God has given them and our sin nature corrupts them and bends them to do great harm to us. 
And we ought to look to the person who is a workaholic and who is overworking and neglecting their wife or neglecting their husband or neglecting their kids or neglecting what's happening in the church or neglecting their walk with God. And we ought to look at them and say, stop, no, turn and go the other way. You are headed down a destructive path and there are, you are going to leave bodies in your wake. We ought to do that. But, but, but if we want to help the person. We want to get them to the place in which they turn their hearts in a different direction. If we want to see a true and lasting repentance from a besetting sin, well, my goodness, we better figure out what the root cause of their overworking is. See, there could be ten different reasons a person is a workaholic. And if you don't get to the reason that they are a workaholic, you can't actually help that person. Is it because they have a bad marriage they're trying to escape? Is it because they're filled with greed? And jealousy? Is it because they're still trying to win their dad's approval and to hear from him for the first time that he's proud of them? Is it because they want to be able to feel some sense of value as a person and have some understanding of their identity as a person and so they keep trying to put certificates on the wall and plaques on their desk and accomplishing and getting raises and getting promotions so they can feel something about themselves? What is the reason for their overworking? That is the root cause. That is why the symptom exists. And that is where the repentance must reach. See, what we need to recognize is that your problems are not ultimately your problem. They reveal your problem, but your problems are not ultimately your problem. See, here's what we like to do. We have an issue, whether it's outbursts of anger, or it's, it's overworking, or it's, it's retreating and escaping into a virtual world and abandoning our families along the way. Whatever the issue is, we want to be able to blame and to justify it by our environment, by our circumstances, by the experiences that we've known and, and went through. And so we'll say, yeah, 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 my dad made me this way. Uh, if, if I had had more opportunities, this wouldn't have been the case. If I could have gotten a better education, my life wouldn't have been so miserable. If my dad hadn't have spoken to me this way, I wouldn't speak to your mom that way. If, if I had not gotten sick, I wouldn't be so angry. If, if my mom and dad hadn't divorced... That we look at the circumstances, we look at all the problems of our lives, and we point to them and we say, that's my problem. That's what's going on with me. That's why I am the way that I am. And so it's telling that what Jeremiah does is he makes sure that Judah can't blame their problem on the circumstances. Verse 5, he says, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. Now, skip down to verse 8, talking about the blessed man. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when, not if, not if, when heat comes. That the picture here is of two trees in the desert. It's not one that got the good luck and the good fortune of being raised in the Amazon rainforest where it's raining every day of the year and the other got stuck out in the Saharan desert. This is in the Middle East, man. Everybody's living in the desert. Everybody's facing the dry climate. All of them are experiencing the same sun and the same heat at the same time. But only one of them, the cursed man, looks up at the sun and curses the sun because it's so parched. 
See, that's what we do, isn't it? We look at the sun and we look at the storms and we blame the sun and we blame the, the storms for treating and tattering us the way that we are and causing our lives to be other than the way that we want them to be. But brothers and sisters, hardship finds us all. Hardship finds every man, every woman, every saint that has ever lived. Hardship and sun and storms have beaten against their house. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, some houses fall and some houses stand. And the difference is not the storm. You see, it would be an overstatement to say that our circumstances have no influence on us. If you experience abuse as a child, of course, that has influence on your life. If, if you watched your dad abuse your mom, of course that has influence. If you were raised in a household where everybody screams at everybody all the time, of course that has influence. If you were raised in a home in which you never had the approval of your parents or felt like you could never do enough for your parents, of course, of course that has influence of your life. But my point is not that they aren't influential, it's that they aren't causative. They aren't causative. That ultimately you have to make a decision with what you're going to do with your life. Ultimately, you have to make the decision with how you will respond to the upbringing that you've received and the hardships that you've known and the difficulties that you've encountered. I know of a family in which there were two siblings. And both siblings were raised in this house that was unthinkable. There was abuse, there was alcoholism, there was drug abuse, there was, it, all of these things were normative. The, the, the kids were, were taken from the family, foster care was involved. There was dysfunction from the beginning all the way through. And as these siblings grew up, the, one of the siblings grew up and they were a terrible parent. And they struggled with alcoholism and, and they were uh, addicted to drugs and they were on jobs and out of jobs. And their kids followed after them. And if you went and you asked them what happened to them, here's what they would say. It was because of who my daddy was. It was because of what my mama did. It was because I was abandoned. It was because I never had a place to go. It was because I never had any opportunities. But, and this is a true story, there was a second sibling. And that second sibling was a devoted spouse. And that second sibling was a little league coach. And that second sibling was there to make sure his kids always knew that he was proud of them. And that second sibling was there to make sure that he would work hard, long hours if need be, to make sure that everything was always okay and taken care of. You could not say, I love you or I'm proud of you enough. And if you ask them the reason why they are that way, here's what they will say. Because of the way I was raised. Because I never received that. Because I never knew that. Because my mama didn't love me and my dad didn't care for me and my family abandoned me. And I saw the havoc of what happened. And it was the same situation with two of the same siblings encountering the same hardships in life. And yet they responded in two different ways. Brothers, the sisters, the son falls on us all. All of us are tempted to be withered and dried out. But how will you respond? See, the heat doesn't cause, the heat reveals. It reveals. Your circumstances don't cause, they reveal what's happening beneath the surface. Your problems are not your problem. Your fruit comes from your root. That's Jeremiah's point. Your fruit comes from your root. 
The difference between the cursed man and the blessed man is the location of the root. The cursed man trusts in man. He makes flesh his strength. He trusts in the wisdom of his age. He trusts in his ability to be able to outsmart any difficulties that come. He trusts in his ability to be strong enough, to be educated enough, to be able enough. He trusts in his ability to be able to navigate the hardships of life, to be able to weather any storms that come. He has an iron jaw, he believes, and a stiffened spine, and he says, bring it on. And Jeremiah says, and he is like the one who sinks his root into the salted soil. It's poisoned. That's why he's parched. That's why he's withering. That's why he's dying. But there's a second man. There's a second man that he doesn't turn inside. He doesn't look to himself. He doesn't trust in his wisdom. He doesn't trust in his strength. He doesn't trust in his abilities. He doesn't trust in what he knows. He doesn't trust in what he can do. He trusts in the Lord. And he is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream. That he sends his roots beneath the surface, beyond himself, and he sinks them deep into a fountain of living water. And seeking them deep into a fountain of living water, he finds for himself a source of life. No matter what heat may come, no matter what storms may beat, that tree will stand because it is connected to a source of life. Now let me... Ask you where your source is connected. Who are you trusting to change your life? Is it yourself? Who are you trusting to change your family? Is it yourself? Who are you trusting to start a new family tree? Is it yourself? Who are you trusting to overcome all of your mistakes? Is it yourself? Who are you trusting to build a life worth building? Is it yourself? You are sinking your roots into salted, poisoned soil, my friend. See, Jeremiah sums up the problem of Judah by saying this, verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? He summarizes it all by saying, all of Judah keeps following after their own heart. All of Judah keeps doing what is wise in their own eyes. All of Judah keeps doing that which feels right and feels good and sounds good to them. But they are being deceived by their own hearts. Their hearts are desperately sick and putting them to death and they don't realize it. See, Jesus said, so every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. When you look at your life, what does your fruit say? What does your fruit say? Because Jesus teaches us what Jeremiah is saying, that your fruit reveals your roots. That the fruit of your life uncovers the source of faith and trust and confidence in your life. Are you filled with fear? Are you filled with anxiety? Are you filled with pride? Are you filled with self-harm? Are you filled with shame? Are you filled with all of the things that come with the hardships of this earth? It means that you're trusting in your strength and you're not finding in it. It means that you're trusting in your goodness and you're not finding any. Stop looking to yourself and look to the Lord that you might bear a new fruit. That your life might look different. So what is your path forward? 
I hope there's a problem, a tension that's been created in your mind. And the tension ought to be this. You can't change one kind of tree to another kind of tree, right? None of us has the ability to change kudzu into honeysuckle, right? Can't do it. And so we sit here and we hear what Jeremiah has to say about our hearts being uh, deceitful and desperately sick. And we hear what he says about withering. And we can identify with all of that. But the problem is, if I'm this kind of tree, is there any hope that I could be different? Is there any hope that I could be a fruit-bearing tree? Is there any hope that I can become a different species of tree than I already am? And here's the good news. There is. There is a way for kudzu to become honeysuckle if... God is above nature. This isn't natural, you see. This has to be supernatural. The only way to change one kind of tree into a different kind of tree is for somebody who is above the tree, someone who supersedes the tree, someone who is supernatural to overcome the laws of nature to make it other than it is. That's the problem with your heart. Your heart is naturally sick, your heart is naturally wicked, your heart is naturally deceitful, and you, by your sheer willpower, can't make it other than it is. That's what's natural. That's what comes, that's what comes easy to all of us. The only hope for your heart to become a different kind of heart, the only way for your nature to become a different kind of nature, is if there is one who is above it. If the supernatural is possible, that's the only hope. And that's the picture here, isn't it? Two different indicators of something supernatural that has to take place in Jeremiah's prophecy. He says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Now, have y'all ever seen water that's alive? I want to see it. All right. I, I don't know if there's, I know there's some weird stuff that happens in the water out in Chula Finney and Cleveland County. And if you got that happening, I want to come and see it. All right. But he's talking about a kind of water that you can depend upon. It's a well that can never run dry. It's a source that can never dry up. It's a water that is alive, and because it is alive, it gives to you life. It's beyond the laws of nature. It's outside of what seems to be in the realm of possibility. It defies everything that you've ever known. All of nature comes and is humble beneath this one who can turn water and make it alive, who is the very essence of living water himself. Verse 14, heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Now, he writes this before germ theory has been discovered. He he writes this where when you get sick, you die. They didn't have surgeries that were beyond some very primitive amputations. They didn't have antibiotics. They didn't have the ability to go and to treat great illnesses. But your heart is desperately sick. So what is the hope? The hope is that there is one that is above the germs. There is one that is bigger than the, 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 than the disease. The one who can do that other than what ordinarily ought to happen, which is you die. That there is one who is above all of these things, and it has been proven and verified for us in the person of Christ. I've told you before, the reason that I do ministry is because I believe that people can change. I believe you can change. I don't believe you have to be who your daddy was. I don't believe you have to be tomorrow who you were yesterday. I don't believe that. But I don't believe that you can change because you're good. And I don't believe that you can change because you're strong. 
I believe that your heart is deceitful. I believe that you are desperately sick. I don't believe that you can change because you're good. I believe that you can change because God is sovereign. Because God is above all of the trees of the earth. And God is above all the hearts of the man. And the one who is experiencing that which is natural can be overcome by that which is supernatural. See, whenever I baptize someone, I always quote Romans chapter 6. And it's because it's a picture of this very reality. That when we are baptized, we identify with Christ in his death. And we are baptized into his death. We are lowered into his grave. And there, the old nature is put to death. There, the old heart is taken from our chest. There, the old nature is done away with for good. And then we are raised to walk in newness of life. As somebody different. As a different species of tree. As a different kind of person. Living a different kind of life. Not because of what I have done. Because I have identified with him in his death. And now I I can identify with him in his resurrection. Do you believe that Jesus can raise you to be a different kind of tree? Do you believe that? Not, not in some fairy tale, man, not in some myth, but that the actual living historical person of Christ was raised from the dead, and because he was raised from the dead, you can be somebody new. See, this is where Jeremiah is preparing those in the old covenant for the new covenant. Because you and I can have a different heart. You and I can have a different nature if you were over yourself. If you were over yourself. You see, really, Jeremiah chapter 17 closes the way that it starts. It starts by presenting us two options. There is the withering man and there is the flourishing man. There is the one who is outside of the covenant, outside of a relationship with God. And there is the one who is inside the covenant, in a relationship with God, abiding in Christ. And he comes to the conclusion, and he says, how will you respond? And it shows us because of how Jeremiah responds. Jeremiah doesn't look within himself and say, let me get stronger, let me be better, let me do more, let me try harder. He doesn't say, let me see how many many, uh, of the steps I can accomplish. Let, don't, don't let me, let me see how much of myself I can clean up first. Jeremiah cries out to the Lord and he says, heal me, save me, for you are my praise. God, you must do it all. I can turn inward and die or I can turn upward and live. And I turn upward and I say, Lord, I want to live. I am at the end of myself. When you look at your life and you see the fruit that it's producing, You see that you're drying up at the roots. You can tell that you've sunk your roots into poisoned soil. The question in facing you this morning is, will you get over yourself? Will you get over yourself? Will you come to the end of yourself? And will you place the fullness of your confidence in the person of Christ? Because of the resurrection, those who were sick can now be healed. Those who were lost can now be found. Those who were dead can now be saved. Because he is living water. Will you actually trust him? Will you actually trust him? Now maybe you're here and you say, Cody, Cody, I have trusted in the Lord, but I still find myself anxious. I do, I do. I have trusted in the Lord, but I still have trouble having peace in my soul. I I, I still have trouble having a sense of security. I do. I've been open with you about that. See, we have been changed and we are being changed. Both of those things are true. 
One day in the twinkling of an eye, the skies will split and in an instant all of us will be perfectly sanctified in the presence of Christ. And in that moment there will never be insecurity again. And in that moment there will never be worry again. In that moment there will never be sickness again. In that moment our hope, our peace, our joy will never again come under threat. But right now, we are becoming like Christ. The victory has been accomplished. His righteousness has been credited to your account. But even though we are a fruit-bearing tree, and even though we are secured and abiding in the vine, uh, the thorns of this world can come and wrap itself around a healthy tree, can't it? The thorns of anxiety, and the thorns of depression, and the thorns of of fear, and the thorns of sinfulness, and all the different anger, all the things. The the thorns come, and they wrap themselves around our lives. And when the thorns of this world wrap themselves around a fruit-bearing tree, abiding in the vine, what are we to do? We go back to the fountain, man. We go back to the cross. And what we remember is there at the cross, upon the head of our Savior, was woven my thorns and for yours. And we go there to the foot of the cross and we look upon a Savior who is bearing the weight of my thorns and bearing the weight of your thorns. And we let the Spirit rip those thorns away from us and place them one more time on the head of our Savior who has said, Come to me. Bring to me your brokenness. Bring to me your burdens. Bring to me your sins. Bring to me your insecurities. And let me, let me take them upon myself again. So Christian, this morning, this morning, will you come back to the cross? Will you come back to the fountain and sink your roots in and let him breathe life into you? Will you look up to our crucified Savior and recognize that it was your thorns that he hung on the cross? Let me pray for us. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.